Pour yourself a sweet tea, pull up a lawn chair, and turn the page with us. You're listening to Right on Mississippi, a podcast taking you inside the minds of America's most treasured wordsmiths. I'm Ebony Lamumba, and Right on Mississippi is produced in partnership with Mississippi Public Broadcasting for the Mississippi Book Festival, the South's Literary Lawn Party. So I'm Matt Sawyer, live from the Mississippi Book Festival with accomplished and wonderful author Patrick DeWitt. Hi, Matt. Thanks for joining us from Portland, Oregon. Thank you so much for having me over. I, uh, I'm not going to lie, when, when I found out that you were going to be a guest and I read Under Major Domo Minor, I was like, we're going to have a lot to talk about. I just so appreciate uh, your writing style and your influences. I watched a Shelfie uh, series thing with you at a bookstore in Canada. Do you okay. remember for the, uh, the French exit, you pulled down... A bunch of books uh, yeah. that influenced you, and yeah, one yeah. of them was a Cassavetes uh, movie book. Oh, okay. And it was long ago, and then yeah, yeah. when that happened, I was like, okay, we're going to become friends. But, sure, yeah. But when I read Under Major Domo Minor, yeah. in the back of the book, I think it was the last person that you mentioned as an influence on yeah. that story was Eudora Welty. Yeah, yeah. The Robert Bridegroom was in my mind when I wrote that book. So talk to me about... Eudora Welty, we're in Jackson, okay? Yeah, right. Eudora Welty City. Um, yeah, how she's influenced your writing. Well, the reason, I should back up a bit and just say the reason I made the point of listing the influences at the back of the book is I had noticed that in earlier books that I put out, they assign you an influence. Obviously, this person's influenced by such and such. Yeah. And it's wrong almost all the time. <laughs> and so I wanted to furnish these good men and women uh, with the actual influences, which... I don't know if it was useful or not. It seems like maybe it was not. But also there's a thing that I found useful when I was a younger up-and-coming reader more than a writer. When an author, you, you find an author you admire and he or she references their influences and you sort of are following the, their information backwards in time. Yeah. And it can be really helpful uh, in terms of just solidifying, you know, who, 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 are your, who are your authors? Yeah. When an author you admire helps you figure that out, it's a good thing. So I thought of it as maybe being uh, beneficial to other readers, younger readers, ideally, who are searching for their authors. If you like this book, then these people did it better than I did. So (laughs) go have fun with it. But Eudora Welty, I really was thinking of the Robert Bridegroom in particular. Um, I'm not a Welty completist or anything like that, but somebody who I've been aware of and reading and admiring for, you know, decades at this point. Yeah. And there was something, she hit a sort of a, a tone with Robert Bridegroom that I felt was what I was trying to do with under major. So I don't always have that. Oftentimes I'm sort of casting around in the dark and aiming for a sort of vague emotional bullseye. Yeah. And I don't need to have the specific, you know, influence in order to complete a work, but it doesn't hurt. Oh yeah. And it's not as though having an influence will write the book for you, but it's sort of like a light in the dark for you. It just sort of um, brightens the room a bit. Yeah. And makes my, you know, the takeaway from reading The Robber Bridegroom was just uh, the tone that she hits in terms of it being strange, funny, you know, yeah. and then also just beautifully written. So it's, it's, a, it's a high bar. Um, but she's certainly one of the people that I look to. And you rose to it. I mean, the one thing that I love about your writing, similar to Eudora, and again, I, I came to Eudora Welty later in the game. Mm-hmm. One of my friends in Minnesota who went to college in Mississippi was like, you need to read Delta Wedding, which was honestly a very hard book to, to be the first one that okay. um, that you read. But yeah. I love, and she mentions this in her memoir as well, 
just observation from a very young age, sitting in the back of her, her parents' car and her mom was with a friend and she's just in the back seat loving that she gets to learn about how adults talk. Yeah. And all of your books have that similar shared love of human behavior. Yeah, yeah. Straight down to the dialogue. And, and in some reason, for some reason, what sticks out is um, Lucy's lying. Mm-hmm. That yeah. that you mention, yeah. and just like how exciting it is when he told a good lie. Oh, it's a superpower when you discover lying as a young person. I remembered being like, okay, so, this is exciting. Yeah. So tell me about like when you're when you're crafting a character like Lucy, who yeah. I mean that's an epic journey that 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 book goes on. But yeah. um, you know, filling out that character, yeah, lying plays a role, but it's just so much of the you know I guess the internal dialogue of people and how they're moving about the world. But use that as an example of how you're. You're shaping a character as they go through a story. Yeah. I, the discovery of characters for me, sometimes it's very simple. Like with French Exit, for example, I sat down one day and I had a loose idea of who the character of Frances Price, the protagonist of that book, would be. And then she just was there from the first day. And the first 10 or so pages of that book were the first 10 or so pages I wrote, you know, more or less line for line. And if only it were that easy, every time it's not. Yeah. Typically, I'm working on something now, and I'm not really sure who the protagonist is, and I keep casting around, and it'll figure itself out or it won't, and then you won't, you know, sometimes the people never come into focus, and you step away from them. Uh, Um, Bob Comet, for example, is still somewhat elusive to me. He was not, he's not a bright, bright, bright character in the way that, say, Francis is, or Eli's sisters, or Lucy even, but um, I don't know. Sometimes they're eager to share and sometimes they're a little bit more opaque or or elusive and there's no one right way. And it's not as though the Francis, the ease, uh, relative ease that Francis came into view. It wasn't that that book is superior to the ones where the character is is a little bit more elusive, but um, I prefer it when it goes easy because it just feels right, you know? Yeah. Yeah. But in terms of Lucy, Lucy was somewhere in the middle, I think. I knew I wanted him to be... Uh, a liar. I knew I wanted him to be boastful and vain, but also ultimately good-hearted. Somebody who wants, you know, when you're at that age, I think he's 17 in the book. You're. It's a wait. It's a time of waiting, or it was for me. Um, I knew I wasn't going to go to college. I knew what I wanted to do, but I didn't have it yet. I didn't have the skills yet. I didn't have the life experience yet. I didn't know what I wanted to say. I didn't have anything to say. So you're sort of bluffing for a phase of maybe three or four years. So I wanted to write a character who's in that phase of, of, of bluffing his way, or as they say in AA, you fake it till you make it. And uh, so that was going to be Lucy from the beginning. But in terms of fleshing that character out, making him a three-dimensional walking, talking, breathing entity, uh, it did take some time. Um, a big part of that book is, is is and I would say that maybe the Sisters Brothers is the same, the backdrop is... A big or maybe the big character, mm-hmm. you know, like the time, the 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 world that the, you know, the stage dressing yeah. is, is is a big part of that. So, that sort of does a lot of the heavy lifting, and it and that world lends itself to walk on characters, which I like. People oh, yeah. would come in, say something strange, and then depart. So the book is filled with those people. Um, but it wasn't until really a bit about the one third halfway point of writing the rough draft of Under Major Domo that I really understood Lucy. And so what you have to do is then go back to the start and, and sort of seek out the moments where he's not acting like himself yeah. as you now understand him. And oftentimes it's just subtle tweaks, but he'll be a little bit too boastful or a little bit too cruel or something, you know, yeah. and so you sort of shave off the the incorrect uh, emotional information and streamline it. And then you're back to the 
part where you stopped and then you just see the rest of the book through but i'm rambling a bit but oh i love it <laughs> yeah um yeah the, the 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 question of who the character main character of any novel is is i think the primary question and um it's frustrating at times in that it's it's often um hard to grasp but that's just a part of it you know i think about this a lot of my musician friends work on a an album it's mm-hmm. like Sometimes you need to let go of one idea to get to the better music, to sure. get to the better project. Yeah, yeah. And I think all anyone that's created something has struggled with that. Yeah. Um, how do you know when to, to let go? Do you do that? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've written complete books and then not submitted them. I've, I've, um, I mean, The Librarianist was, was far much, much longer. It was almost double length, the first draft. And so I cut, I mean, the edits were just brutal. It was a war zone. <laughs> but I printed it out. Having not read it as a piece, and I printed it all out and realized, oh, this is quite a lot longer than I thought it was. And there was just so many digressionary stories, you know, mm. C grade or B or D grade. Like I'm, by that, I mean characters who are just walk on characters. And it's like the backstory of their mother kind of a thing. It was I really overdid it, and I don't know why. That was just the mode I was in in the writing of this book. It has a lot to do with why it took so long to get it done. But um, yeah, um, this one. I lost my place. Where were we? What were we talking about? Yeah, just when to let go of a, oh, a character right. or an idea to yeah. move on to one that feels more natural, as you were saying. I think that's really one of the things that I don't know if it can be taught or or, or, or the, the the notion can be instilled in, in any young author, but I don't know if it can necessarily be taught. It really comes down to it's just the taste of the maker, right? The 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 something is right or wrong. And oftentimes it is literally that black and white. Something yeah. is, is correct or incorrect. And the incorrect can still be worthwhile and well-made and interesting. But does it serve the greater good? Is it a piece of the, you know, a book is one thing, ideally. Yeah. Is it a piece of that solid rock? Or is it something that could be taken away? And there's, you know, they say, you know, if you can take it away and the book still stands, then you should probably cut it. I, I agree with that with some trepidation. Yeah. But... You know, um, editing is, to me, the most exciting aspect of writing. Huh. I guess that's true. Sounds, let's just say that that's true. <laughs> Creation is maybe the most exciting. But when you have a piece and you're cutting something away it, and it changes the work, the text, so drastically just by omitting something. Yeah. So that's really exciting. Yeah, there's power in that. Yeah. yeah. Where it almost makes it, like, it, it's, it's, it's movement. Yeah. No, it's absolutely, it's so creative, cutting uh you wouldn't think that it necessarily would be you, you would think that the invention would be like the primary yeah creative aspect but but omitting is can be really really invigorating and exciting because by the simple act of deleting a chapter suddenly the book is completely a new animal yeah it's, um, yeah that invigoration of um when you know when people talk about a craft right but yeah. you think about it with your hands i like when artists say i i more so chisel my way yeah through something because you're shaping it and reshaping it and then that there's so much work, and that's the thing about writers. The reason I love love talking to you all about your work, and I respect you so much, is it's such hard work mm-hmm. that is not depicted as such. You know, yeah. sometimes in popular media, and uh, yeah. I just feel like, yeah, thinking about you crafting this, it's um, it is exciting as it is frustrating, I'm sure, and sure. The, the grueling decisions you have to make. Yeah, I mean, look, the librarian this is long. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> to think of that as double. Yeah, uh, is just like yeah, but what a challenge! So yeah. how can I make this book the the best it can be? You know? Yeah, yeah. I want. I I haven't really qu- questioned my own methods for writing. It's just a I do what feels correct. Um, 
But when I fi- finished this one and I recognized how much time I'd put into sections that were ultimately cut, I, I sort of started thinking, like, maybe I should be plotting a bit more, planning a little bit more, plotting things out, which, which I don't like to do. I haven't liked to do because invariably when I've tried to, you know, you start a story at point A and B being the end and you've got it all mapped out, but getting from A to B, so much changes in my mind about, you know, the, the, the world that I've been building and spending time in that the the ending oftentimes won't make sense by the time I get there or it's not correct anymore emotionally. Yeah. So I, and then there's also the, the joy of not knowing what's coming every day. So I sit down to work and oftentimes it's nothing much, you know, to write home about. It's, it's just sort of drudge work, but you do have those days several times during the writing of any long form project where it's like, okay, I really didn't see this coming. This yeah, is it's discovery. Yeah. It's yeah, exploration yeah, yeah. of your own work yeah, constantly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And those revelations yeah, you know where something comes has to be so exciting. But the one I'm glad you brought up correct or incorrect and yeah. how that is for you. Right. I've loved li- listening to you talk about. You know, there's the obvious stories of luck involved in how you, you know, started publishing. But but the one thing was your lack of guidance. Yeah. And um, sometimes that can feel like oh well, I absolutely need somebody to mentor me. Right. Yeah. But at the time you didn't have that. So you had to make a decision. Right. You had to work it out whether or not you were going to wait around for somebody to guide you through it or just do it. Right. But, you know, th- listening to you talk about making decisions, you kind of just had to develop your own. You said it before, you know, you didn't go to an MFA program. Right. You know, you didn't have these sort of um, structures around writing that uh, honestly probably hinder some people's ability to be creative. So I'm curious how you felt like yeah. maybe empowered yeah. by that lack of a, a formal write, writing training right. at a young age. Well, I wish I, 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 I wish somewhat anyway that that I had been fully aware of uh, MFA programs and 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 had said I will not do that, and then I went. But that's not what happened. My interest in literature was always to the side of my peer group. It was something that I did privately. Most of my friends were musicians, or you know, I'm thinking of the, my years in Los Angeles. Um, some of my friends read somewhat, but n- nobody was on the quest that I was on, and there wasn't much to talk about. And so my relationship to language arts was, was something that was very private. And an example being, I would finally say an author's name out loud after having read him or her for 10 years. And it would be pointed out to me that I was mispronouncing their name. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. it was very, um, it just was my private quest that I was on. And, uh, it was sort of ridiculous in its way, you know. I'm a 17-year-old high school dropout, and I'm going to write novels. It didn't really make sense. But that was, I thought, you know, I grew up reading when I was 14, 15, 16. I grew up reading a lot of my father's books, and a lot of those books were sort of beat or beat-adjacent books. And these are books about people who went out and had uh, adventures and then wrote about it. And so that was my, you know, sort of immature model, and that's what I did. And it worked ultimately in that I came to a place where I felt that I had a voice and I had something to say and that I was actually genuinely suited to the life of the writer, which is solitary. But um, it shouldn't have worked. It shouldn't have. It's strange that it worked. And I wouldn't recommend it. And I, I think I did lose a lot of time spinning my wheels and making the same mistakes over and over again, which even a middling uh, uh, you know, teacher or guidance professional yeah. would have pointed out, okay, you're wasting time here. Don't do this. I think I overcame them. I'm sure I still have some bad habits, but 
I'm sort of saying two things. I'm, I'm glad that things went the way they did and that I did it on my own because it feels good to do things on your own. Sure. But I, again, I, I wouldn't necessarily recommend it. And there's so many, I mean, the most brilliant writers in the world are teaching right now. And yeah. so why would you not avail yourselves to their yeah. excellence? You know, I think a lot of it is just, you know, it, it takes a lot um, to have that quest and, and yeah. to act on it. It's yeah. vulnerable to write. It's vulnerable to say, I really want to do this and I'm going to go for it. Yeah. A lot of people will, um, they'll shoot down the idea. Yeah. And they'll talk you out of it, especially because you didn't have other literary friends. I just felt of like, there was a, a critical moment in your life that you talked about when I believe you, you moved back to, to Canada, yeah. Vancouver, and you said you learned how to be alone. Yeah. yeah. And so much of writing, creating, shoot, yeah. why do a podcast? I'm alone sometimes for 20 hours on a weekend right, doing right. research and reading. And I'm just like, wow, I literally have not uttered a word to another human. Yeah. yeah. Um, but, but talk about how important it was for you to, as you said, get, get away from from the distractions of things that were going to prevent you from doing ultimately what you wanted to do right. and go in there and, and start going to the library and becoming a reader and learning how to be alone. Yeah. I, I, I thought before I left uh, Southern California for Canada, which is, well, I was born in Canada, but I had been living in Los Angeles for many years. By the time I left high school, I had thought of, I thought of myself as somebody who was taking it seriously and doing the good work um, in terms of studying and, and, and you know, reading with purpose and trying to compose, right? And I was doing I was doing it. But there's levels of doing it, right? And when I moved to Vancouver, I left behind a really sort of erratic friend group. Um, a lot of the people that I was friendly with were very fun and, and wonderful and many of whom I'm still friendly with, but they were a lot of them were sort of on a perpetual tear. Yeah. And, and so you waste a lot of time, time burning yourself out and abusing yourself and that was just the you know 90s in los angeles it was just um you know we were gluttons and, and gluttony, gluttony there's a time and a place for gluttony but if you're trying to do solitary meaningful work it doesn't necess one doesn't necessarily lend itself to the other so well, it's not as though i moved to vancouver and became angelic but i did not have a friend or i had a couple of i had an acquaintance from my childhood who i saw from time to time i met one or two people that became I became friendly with, but generally speaking, it was two years, two and a half years of just me by myself. And I had a job sometimes, sometimes I didn't on my days off or when I wasn't working. I was at the library more or less every day, and I was reading really widely. And it it just is one of those things where I felt myself sort of getting into shape, if you understand what I mean. Yeah. Like, okay, the the, the training is over, and now I'm really doing it. And the work wasn't good. You know, but that wasn't really the point. I mean, I was young enough to think that the work was good. Looking back, it was pretty ghastly, but it was good enough to keep me going. And I, I recognized that improvements were being made. And more importantly, through the library, I was finding the authors that were doing what I wanted to do. So lists like that list at the back of yeah. Under Major Domo, I was compiling lists like that all the time. And I would bring home stacks of books and, and I would know, you know, reading something. OK, you were supposed to read Herman Hess. So I read 10 pages. No, it's not for me. I put it to the side. You're supposed to read so-and-so. Okay. I was really like speed dating almost. Yeah. And then when I found the authors that meant something to me, then I became very dutiful and I would read all of the books of theirs that I could find. And I mean, you know, I'm describing something that's very basic to the life of any reader or a reader writer, but it happened in Vancouver. And at the end of the two years, I moved back to uh, Southern California. But by that point in time, I knew that I could do it. 
I suspected that I could do it when I moved to Canada, but by the time I left, I was like, I, I can be alone for years at a time and I'll feel fine. You know, and there's something really great about discovering that. You yeah, know, that you are suited for it. I mean, when I moved to a town of five thousand people in southern Appalachia, most yeah. people thought I'd gone insane. Yeah, I thought I had too. Uh huh. But what I realized is I, I needed space to do what I really wanted to do. Yeah. And ironically, in that loneliness, I discover what I really love and what I'm good at, and built a community. But but it yeah the, it you're like oh man can I can I really do this? Yeah. Is, is this going to work out? And I love that you talk about speed dating because how much time do we waste on things we don't like? Yeah. And I hate that. I tell kids in my community, every time I meet them, if I meet a high schooler, middle schooler, it does not matter. Kid in college comes back. I'm like, stop saying you have to do anything. Right. right. Yeah. Because when I kind of let go, I mean, Willie Cather is you know, my favorite author along with, you know, you do wealthy. And it's like, when you finally dive into those things that you can be dutiful to, yeah. right, it's natural. But before that, just shed some of these expectations of what's Absolutely. good, what's bad, and then you can find your own voice right. in the midst of all that. And I just, yeah, I really respect that. Um, yeah. Well, nowadays, too, especially with the algorithm being so prominent in our lives, and an algorithm can be very effective. I know a lot of close friends sort of defend them, and they say, but I would never have heard such and such a band if it wasn't for the algorithm. And that's legitimate, but I, I, I do think that there's something to be said for doing the work on your own. And then also, I think it's more meaningful when you uncover the artist or group of artists or whatever, it just feels better. It's like you've done, you've done the homework yourself yeah. and then you find the thing that means so much to you. And, um, I don't think things should be as easy. Algorithms are just, I think a shade too easy for, yeah. for my tastes. Yeah. You know? And the things that we think should be easy used to, I mean, look, some of my, my best friends, the reason I love it is, you know, they're a generation older. Yeah. They yeah. said they'd stumble into a bookstore. Right. right. And they'd find a story because they were like, I'm just going to wander around, yeah. see what's out there. And it changed them, changed yeah. their life. Sure. Um, but yeah, the, when something is spoon fed to you, it doesn't require the effort yeah. and the the personal connection and conviction it takes. But really, it's just like wandering and exploring. Yeah. yeah. Well, the quest, is the, the quest is the thing and it's endless. You yeah. know, I'll be, I'll be searching out. There's, there's no end to, to books. They're not going to end. I mean, books, you know, I, I think I have a very specific need as a reader. I'll never get anywhere near completing the list of authors that will scratch the itch for me, which is nice. Yeah. Um, but, you know, also, it's not just, I'm thinking of um, independent booksellers or librarians. You know, I have, there's a record store up the street from my house called Mississippi Records. <laughs> yeah. Which is a wonderful record store. And it's completely, being close to Mississippi Records has completely changed my record collection. Wow. Because Eric, the owner, knows what I like. And when I come in, I say, what's here that I will like? And he'll bring out three or four records. And two or three of them will be records I'll keep for the rest of my life. So that's an important thing, too. I yeah. mean, we can't... I, I don't think that people should just be alone and not no. communicating with their peers. If you find somebody who understands your tastes and knows... Curating. You know, a human curation. Yeah, 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 yeah. someone listening to you. Right. right. Yeah. yeah. Not... It's not through a computer, right? I mean, right. you've connected with them before. And when someone listens to you and gives you a gift like that, yeah. what a great gift. Right. Like, oh, yeah, I listened. Here, you should try this author. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just like it shows that they that you care. And that's yeah. why book exchanges are, you know, they're, they're so important. For sure. And, um, you know, but and I think this plays into, I want to get a little bit at least to the, the librarianist because you said something that needs to be talked about much more. I live in a very aging community in, yeah. in South um, or Western North Carolina. Mm-hmm. Elders in our country mm-hmm. are pushed to the side. Absolutely. They're not part of the conversation. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I, I loved about your own background going into the story of, of working at the senior center, but even the story itself is just like centering yeah. Yeah. The, the, that problem 
that we have. So talk about your experience at that senior center informing this book and, and how it helped you shape this story. Yeah. So pre-pandemic, I was asked by sort of a friend of a friend or somebody who became my friend who was directing, uh, was like the director of, of, of a senior center up the street from my home in Portland. And she called me or emailed and said, would you like to come in and, you know, representing literature in some way, um, visit with the seniors here? And I said, well, what if I come in and, re- and read maybe an hour or two a week? She said, that'd be great. Bring it on. So I started bringing in things, and um, it wasn't so much that I connected through literature as just my presence there and my curiosity. My curiosity about the people of the center was piqued almost at once, and a good many of them wanted to share and were ready to speak. And as you say, like I think that there is a sense among the, the, the senior community of being not quite visible or not a part of the conversation of our culture or our society so to bring them literature discuss the literature that was good but what was more important for me because they weren't necessarily looking for literary experience some were interested in the books and some were readers and, and some and even many maybe were sort of like enduring my reading so that we could chat after yeah. <laughs> and um they wanted to know about what was going on in my life and i would come back from a tour and they would say what was it like and they would want well you went to ireland what's the food like in ireland they just wanted to continue to be curious, to have their 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 uh, questions answered, to be told things they didn't know, to be reminded of things they'd forgotten, and they were just there was a sense of they were game, yeah, you know, yeah, I love and it that. was really lovely, and I had not really given much thought to, to 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 senior citizens other than you know the the ones that are were already existing in my life, <clears throat> and I I just came away from you know the pandemic screwed the whole thing up. I started writing letters to two men. Every week I'd write them a letter and one could write back and did and, and another one wasn't able to write back and did not. But that was meaningful as well. But I really missed going in there and seeing them and listening to them and what's going on. And I mean, just their stories were insane. I mean, I asked this one gentleman, um, how did you find yourself in Portland? And he casually told me this story about how he had come to Portland and it was this absolutely epic love story. Is, that, stopped, is that the Otis writing guy? Yeah, yeah, he was in a soul band in, in Detroit, and his band opened up for Otis Redding, and he was driving to Seattle because his music career had fizzled. And uh, he stopped for a beer in Portland, and he, there was an attractive woman at, at a bar on the same street we were on in Albina in North Portland. And he said, he said, I was a very smooth man when I was younger, and I, I could see that it was true. And he's like, I went over and I bought her a beer, and we fell in love. And we've been married for however many years, and she had died recently. Anyway... Ask a question, you get an answer. Sometimes the answers are fascinating, sometimes they're not. But these people had a lot to share. And as I say, they were game. And I just appreciated how welcoming they were. Yeah. And And it filtered into my subconscious, and I began to dream about them. And then I began to think of a senior center as a place for a setting of a novel. And I began to think of a a, a senior volunteering at the senior center to me I really liked. Yeah. Anyway... The senior center and the librarianist is not the senior center that I experienced, but one couldn't exist without the other. So the life experience led to something that will is now a part of my body of work, right? So and talking about your personal experience, the one thing that really felt like it was the the, the gravitational portal into the story is when he does go to read, yeah. and it's a total dud. Yeah, and then he brings the Russian literature, and they're like, "Do you read anything else other than Russian books?" Right, right, right. And and then um, the nurse was it Maria? Is that? Yeah, yeah says no your presence 
Yeah. Be here with them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the thing. And and so the reason I love so the library in Macon County, North Carolina, Jackson County as well, they're so important for those spaces for people to share. Right. And um I just yeah, that was the time in the book where I was like, Oh wow, this is gonna be interesting. It goes from let me yeah, let's try to connect through the books, but really that's not the thing necessarily that people need. And I no. thought that was really cool and, and the when you told the Otis Redding story or the the guy that played with Otis Redding in uh, Oregon, how he ended up there, it reminded me of something he said, oh, people that ho- are holding a story. Yeah. And they're waiting, they're waiting to share it. Yeah. I mean, when you've got a good joke, you're just waiting to tell it, you know, when you've got a, when you've got information that, that deserves to be shared. So to have to hold that is the crime, right? Yeah. Everybody has their things that they want to say or get off their chest or whatever. But I do think that for some seniors, um, there's just no place or space for them to share their accumulated knowledge, which oftentimes is just so vast. So that's a shame. Yeah. And it's, it's really just asking, it's as simple as an invitation Yeah, and how much that can mean to another person. And as you said, I love the word, it enriched your life. Right. What ways do you think you became enriched in that experience? Well, there's a common uh, belief or, or understanding is that the person who gets the most out of volunteering is the volunteer. So I didn't really get that going into it. But it became an important part of my life. And I began to think about these people in ways that surprised me. Um, I, you know, I, I, I began to worry about it. what was I going to read to them. I wanted to be so excellent it would knock their socks off. And when I failed, I would f- feel terribly bad about it. I'd, you know, I'd blown it or whatever. But I was maybe putting too much into it. But ultimately, I just came away with the idea that I was getting as much or more out of this as they were. Um, I don't mean that in a competitive way or that it's important that I was getting more, but to give your time to something that is has nothing to do with you, I turned it into something about me and that I wrote a book about it. But in the time when I was living those moments with these people, it just felt like time well spent. And I I need, and it's important for me to have access to the real world outside of my work because I do have a tendency to sort of lock myself away Yeah, and I can live in that world easily and it's fine but I still want to be a person in the world because I think if you're not then that could negatively affect your fiction Yeah. so I was dipping a toe back into the world and I came away with this wonderful sense of purpose and, and, and uh, just a very loving feeling for these people in my community you know who I would never have had the I would never have spoken to them or recognized them or even seen them, you know, if I hadn't. Uh... Yeah. Yeah. How many people we miss? It's, you know, time and attention Yeah, means that you, know, you start to care about people. And I think, you know, the one thing I can say about your writing is how much you care about people and humanity. And, and like I said, I mean, it's just such a gift to be able to talk to you because you've made a lot of our lives better with your words oh, and, you. and drawn us closer to humanity. So I will say... I'm going to tell everybody, as, as, ma- as many people as I can, about your books. I'm so thankful for Ellen for telling me about you. And um, this was just, yeah, such a pleasure. And uh, I hope you, you get a lot of fans here at the Book Fest. Thanks. Right on Mississippi is produced in partnership with Mississippi Public Broadcasting for the Mississippi Book Festival, the South's literary lawn party.